We give God praise for the refuge that we have found in Jesus Christ and that He is worthy, He is holy, He is mighty, all of these wonderful things. And for us, that is not bad news. If we're trusting in Him, if we found refuge in Jesus, it is not bad news. It is not terrifying. It does not keep us far. It is good news because He has come near to us in Jesus Christ. And we, by trusting in Him, have life in His name and joy, joy indescribable. Let's pray and give Him thanks, and then we'll read from His Word. Let's, let's pray. Father, thank You for Your love for us, that You've given Your only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. Lord Jesus, thank You that You gave Yourself up for our sins to deliver us from this present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. Holy Spirit, thank You that You empower us and equip us, even as You have applied to us everything that Jesus purchased on the cross. You you enable us now to live as we are called, to walk in newness of life as people filled with resurrection power. We ask, Lord, that You would help us this morning. Please be with us as we listen to your word. Help me as I explain it. Help us all as we listen to your word for us. And we pray, Lord, that you would continue your work which you have begun, bringing it even to completion in Jesus' name. Amen. Once again, this morning we are in the Old Testament book of Ruth, and we're going to be in chapter 2. When dealing with a narrative passage of Scripture like this, it's, in my mind, always a choice to do. We read the text in full beforehand and then do a a sort of play-by-play through it all over again, or do we let the story unfold? How do we approach it? I think this morning it's certainly important, although it is a longer passage that we actually read from verse 1 and that we let chapter 2 tell its own story before any further comment. Uh, Not least because God in His his providence, having breathed out His Word, has done so in a very elegant way in chapter 2. You can't just dive in into one verse and, 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 and see the full beauty of the story that unfolds in this chapter. If you were to consider this, uh, this, this chapter's structure, it looks something like an hourglass. You know when, what an hourglass is? Uh, no, those are not things we might normally use, uh, but perhaps at Christmas time you'll be playing games that require a timer, and the timer is one of those, those things with the sand in it that you turn over. You know, it starts wide up here and it ends wide down here, and it's narrow in the middle. Well, Ruth chapter 2 has that structure. It begins out here. Ruth is with her, her uh, mother-in-law, Naomi, and she is going to glean a harvest in the fields. And at, at its heart, at its center point, is a story of remarkable grace. And at its conclusion, she's once again with Naomi, having gleaned a very great harvest. And I want you to, to see that structure as it unfolds. So we'll read from uh, chapter 2, verse 1. Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man 
of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him, in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers, and she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem, and he said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered, The Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his young man who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reaper said, She's she's the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from from the country of Moab. She, She said, Please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came and she's continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. Then Boaz said to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter, do not glean in another field. Or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you're thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me? since I am a foreigner. But Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me, and how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done. And a full reward be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. And at mealtime, Boaz said to her, Come here and eat eat some bread. Dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers, and he passed to her roasted grain. And she ate until she was satisfied, and she had some left over. When she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves, and do not reproach her. And also, pull out some from the bundles for her. Leave it for her to glean, and do not rebuke her. So she gleaned in the field until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. And she took it up and went into the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. And her mother-in-law said to her, Where did you glean today? And where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, The man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. 
Naomi also said to her, the man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. And Ruth the Moabite said, besides, he said to me, you shall keep close to my young men until they have finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, it's good, my daughter, that you go out with his young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. So she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvests, and she lived with her mother-in-law. Amen. Refuge is at the heart of this passage of Scripture. Uh, Ruth, we might not think of in in terms of um, someone taking refuge in anyone or anything. We might think instead of Naomi having tried to do so in Moab and it didn't work out so well. Uh, But the, the text here frames Ruth in the language of refuge and the the language of, in some form, a refugee. Some of you may um, be familiar with slogans, hashtags, and so forth, expressing hospitality to refugees. For us, in Grace Baptist Church Woodgreen, the phrase, for example, refugees are welcome here, is not a hashtag or a political slogan, something to be weaponized to score points in various political fields. It is instead a reality. One stream of our church's admittedly complicated history was a group of us meeting in a library hall just off of St. Anne's Road in 2004. Had to think for a moment. February of 2004. And from the very beginning, a major part of our story was a group of refugees from Burma, also known as Myanmar. Uh, You can tell I was very influenced by these refugees because their insistence, for political reasons, calling it Burma. I still do to this day. Um, They were fleeing to the UK, seeking asylum because the military government of their country was massacring them because of their ethnic minority status. Something that happens far too often around the world even today. And oftentimes we are none the wiser. And when we're the wiser, we tend to shut it out. We can't do much about it, or so we think or or feel. I certainly grew very close to many of those who were in that Uh, grouping of people. There was um, one man particularly, uh, Daniel Shway, who would become a much-loved member and eventually leader in our congregation. He was sent out as an evangelist to plant Grace Baptist Church North Watford, and he still serves there as as pastor. Daniel was um, an asylum seeker when I met him. He um, uh, was, in fact, past that point of seeking asylum, he he was a refugee. He had gotten that legal status and was able to be employed and all of that good stuff. And he moved from Leicester, where he lived and worked, to London to be a part of this church and uh, to serve here. Um, In many ways, uh, my life is different for him and his life is different for us as a congregation. My second missions trip 
spring of 2004 was, uh, was to, to work among um, various Burmese refugee communities in Frankfurt, Germany. So this is, this is not a new thing. This is not uh, some sort of political trend or something that I've, I've uh, embraced. It's, it's been very much a part of my life for 20 years. Over the years, plenty of individuals from other nations have come through our doors. Some seek relief from poverty, others from unemployment, and of course, with that poverty. Others from national instability, personal suffering, violence, ethnic or religious persecution. In 2015, when much of the British press and consequently public was in meltdown over the refugee crisis, I addressed many times in writing and in preaching what I believed our response as Christians and as a church should be to these people. I've not shifted from that at all. Um, in September of 2015, I delivered a message entitled, Getting Out, God's Refugee Rescue Plan, in which I charted the biblical theology of God's people and how it is very much a story of exodus again and again, suffering, oppression, and deliverance at the hands of a powerful God and loving Savior. I said in that message, 2015, the gospel, not nativist xenophobia, should guide our response to the present refugee crisis. And I returned later that year at our Christmas carol service to address the situation, focusing on the theme from Mary's Magnificat, Jesus, liberty for the oppressed. In some ways, much has changed as far as the prevalence of this dialogue, but in other ways, uh, not much has. Just last year in Dunstable, just across the road from Dunstable Baptist Church, where my father until recently was pastor, um, a, a large number of refugees and migrants were placed in a hotel. And there was a great rally at the, um, uh, the historic Priory Church in the heart of the town, uh, one, of, one of the places actually very important in Anglican history, not least for Henry VIII's divorce. And they packed out this, this very large old building. And uh, the live stream of that was deeply troubling as person after person stood up in the, in the house of the Lord and spewed hateful, aggressive, and genuinely... I'm not saying you know they had some concerns about the implementation or the safeguarding or any of genuinely racist filth spoken from these people's mouths. And um, uh, it was refreshing to hear my father's fellow pastor speak um, words of, of warmth, of grace, of hospitality, of gospel into that situation. For far too many, however, this sort of line of conversation has been normalized. We face it in our own congregation just this, this week. It's been a long week. I don't recall. Was that, was that Wednesday, Mason, that I was, um, I, I was uh, with you in the court? Wednesday? Um, over the, the years, I've lost track of the number of immigration tribunals for those seeking asylum I've attended. And 
you know, we've, we've prayed for Mason. We've prayed that the Lord would, would uh, be merciful and, and gracious to him and give him favor. And uh, we've, we've had three in my time. He's been looking for 10 years. But um, the time I've known him, three times I've been to the tribunal. And three times they've adjourned each time because of the lack of preparedness by the home office. They can't find the bundle. Something came up last minute. I was just given the case last night and I'm, I'm not prepared. He's always prepared. I'm always prepared. And then yet again on Wednesday, all day, sat waiting. And then they tell us they can't find the bundle. So it's pushed back yet again. Now we know all of these things are in the hands of God. And we submit to His providence even when it's difficult and must submit, especially when it's difficult and challenging. These are realities that we're familiar with. Seeking refuge. Whatever various and diverse political perspectives on government policy may be represented in the room, our first allegiance must be to the kingdom which is not of this world. And our King Jesus, which informs how we respond. It informs our priorities away from the self-interest that we might otherwise indulge in to proclaiming Christ's good news and practicing His goodness. If people didn't let God's Word inform their behavior towards such people, we wouldn't have this story that we just read in Ruth chapter 2. If we, if, if we did not let the, the Word of God dwell in us richly and, and um, see that the law of the Lord is perfect, then we would in so many ways respond poorly. And we would definitely not have this redemptive story. And without this redemptive story, barring some other providential intervention in human history, we would not have Jesus the Messiah. Let me show you from the passage some things about Ruth the refugee. Ruth, um, we see something about her identity. She expresses her identity in the chapter first in terms of who she is. When she's talking to Boaz in the words we just read, did you notice what she says? I am what? I am a foreigner. I'm not from around here. This is not my people. This is not my home. It's very easy for a foreigner to say, this people will be my people. Their God will be my God. I will live where you live and, and where you die. I will be buried, as Ruth had said. But the reality shifts when you get out of that initial support group. And you realize that you're not always welcome here. So many of us are uh, migrants, if, even if not refugees. We understand something of the migrant experience. Uh, even those of us who were born here. I wasn't born here, but I, I hear it on, on good faith that those of you who were born here, who speak with a, a, a proper London accent and um, all of that good stuff, nonetheless find yourselves being asked where you're from. Um, and, and the implication very well being that you're not, you're not from around here. And for, for me, I don't mind when someone asks uh, so much. 
I, I like talking about my family history, and Americans are a bit weird. They'll, they'll be over there living for 300 years and still be talking about you know, their, their homeland that they've never seen, and then they come over and annoy the Irish um, uh, with their, um, uh, their tourism. Uh, so, you know, we, we know something about, uh, about this, and some like it and some don't like it. Why we don't like it when we're asked is when it's spoken with a particular curl of the tongue that implies that we are out of place and don't belong. And Ruth, in this moment, understands something of that. She knows, regardless of her profession and her commitment that she made to Naomi, which we read at the conclusion of Ruth chapter 1, she knows as she works in the fields of Boaz that she's out of place. She doesn't look like them. She doesn't talk like them. There, there's um, something remarkable in that she is able to communicate. They, these people all had different languages and dialects and so forth, but she's communicating with them. Nonetheless, the reality of getting words wrong and speaking in a broken language or communicating with a, a thick accent that definitely is out of place in a certain setting is real, would have been in her situation. She didn't really have to say it. Everyone knew it. I am a foreigner. Not only is she a foreigner, she is specifically a foreigner from Moab, a cursed people. People who had not shown hospitality to the Israelites when they were coming from Egypt in slavery. Worse than not showing hospitality, they had actively sought to curse the Israelites. That backfired spectacularly when it came to their uh, more sorcery-driven curses. But they were successful in helping the Israelites to curse themselves by um, flooding the camp with Moabite prostitutes who not only led them into immorality, but also into idolatry. Tens of thousands died. It was a memory that they would never be able to escape. And the Moabites would not be permitted in the assembly of the Lord. I'm a foreigner. I'm from people far off in more ways than one. But not only does she express her identity in terms of who she is, she expresses her identity in terms of what she is not. Did you catch that when we were reading? It's at the conclusion of her dialogue with Boaz. She's finding it remarkable at first that, why have you shown favor to me? Why have you shown grace to me? Because I am a foreigner. And she concludes it that you've, you've shown me favor even though I am not one of your servants. She has no connection to Boaz. He's not her employer. She really had... Minimal business being in his fields. There were provisions, there were safeguards, which we'll see in a moment, that allowed her to be there. But he had no responsibility for her. None. There was no legal obligation for him to be kind to her. 
The law did not require that he lavish grace upon her. It simply required that he tick a few boxes so that she was able to make ends meet. Boaz went above and beyond that, and she's stunned by his grace. I'm not one of your servants. I am a foreigner. I'm not one of your servants. That's the identity of Ruth, but also see the need of Ruth, the refugee. Ruth needs family. Her father-in-law is dead. Her husband is dead. Her brother-in-laws are dead. Brother-in-laws, brother-in-law is dead. In her society, this leaves her and her mother-in-law in a uniquely vulnerable place. They had no suitable provision or protections. Legally, they, they didn't actually have anything themselves. So they're now, because the, no one has actually stepped up to take responsibility for them, they're in a, a very gray, neutral place. It seems that they are living somewhere. It would be assumed that was their old home that they had left. Presumably, they come back to Bethlehem and it's still around and they're able to uh, uh, dust it out and, and, and live there. But... It didn't actually belong to them, and they didn't have anyone looking after them. They had to look after themselves. This is what has occasioned their move. It's what's occasioned Ruth's move. All of the menfolk in her family are dead. It's her and Naomi to Bethlehem. Naomi and Elimelech not only have roots there, but they they have relatives there. Ruth, however... The only relative that she can honestly say she has there is her mother-in-law. She needs family. She needs people who will take responsibility for her, people who will look after her. And family is a little more than responsibility, isn't it? it it's, responsibility can be something that's grudging. It's a, it's a privilege. It's an honor. It's a community as well. It's being a part of something bigger than yourself. Uh, a safety net, a community, people who love you and care about you, that you can rely on when you're in need. She needs that, but she doesn't have it. Oh, there's another need. Ruth needs food. So I mean, this is framed, verse 1 of chapter 2, you know, talking about Boaz, and then it forgets him for a few verses. But um, the context of chapter 1 frames chapter 2 we have established that she needs family. And then it does mention this uh, relative named Boaz in verse 1. But the pressing need is actually for food. So Ruth says to Naomi, Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. Think about the law of the Lord for a second. I mentioned some safety provisions, some, some things that were there that Boaz could, if he ticked the boxes, just get away with the bare minimum. The, the law of the Lord was, was particularly considerate toward the marginalized of Israel society before they even had a national identity as such. Uh, sojourners, it's an umbrella term that applies to any who may find themselves living in Israel, but not of Israel, showing that God has always had the nations in view for His mission. Sojourners, 
the fatherless, widows. You'll see several times throughout the law special provisions made for these categories of people as a unit. And think about Ruth for a moment. Even when Naomi is telling her to go home, she does not say go home to your father. She says go to your mother. No reference is ever made to her father. We can infer from various elements in the text then that Ruth actually fits all three of these categories. She's a sojourner. She's fatherless. If her father is, is alive, because it is referenced that he has left, she has left her father and mother later, um, although that could be a, a turn of phrase for, you know, your family is back there. Her father-in-law, the one in whose household she had been brought, is dead. And yes, of course, she is a widow. It would seem then that, that Ruth found herself in each category. God told His people specifically about these groups of people not to pervert justice for them, but to remember, as Israelites, remember who you are and remember where you've come from. You were slaves in Egypt and I brought you out. Remember that and let that inform how you treat people like this. You were a slave and I redeemed you. Live redemptively towards sojourners. Live redemptively towards the fatherless and widows. Verse 19 of Deuteronomy 24 says specifically about harvesting, when you reap your harvest in your field and forget a sheaf in the field, you shall not go back to get it. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow, that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. So don't think like, oh, I missed out on that. I got to go get it because you know, I'm going to miss out on some of the blessing. No, leave it for them. And in leaving it for them, you will be blessed. Because of this law, Ruth knew that although she had no land, although she had no family, although she did not belong, although she was a foreigner, although she was not a servant, she would find some food. So she goes to the fields. Not only does Ruth need family, not only does she need food, she needs favor. Because in verse 2 again it says, I, I, I need to go to the field, let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. Favor here being the same word that we might elsewhere translate grace. Undeserved, unmerited kindness. Above all, Ruth needs someone who will look at her with kindness and grace. She needs someone who will offer her hospitality, safety, and generosity. She has nothing to offer. She cannot at this point be expected to give, only to receive. She brings nothing to the harvest fields but her lonely, hungry, foreign, jobless self. In summary, Ruth needs refuge. She goes around picking up, what a pathetic sight in many ways, the stray stalks of grain, the bits and pieces that fall by the wayside, the 
the leftovers from the harvesters. But in so doing, she practically demonstrates faith that the Lord is good, that His Word is true, and that there is provision under God for her. And that that provision is found even through His people, of whom she is not ethnically, meaningfully, apart. There's, there's, I have nothing to bring, but God has provided for me. There's nothing that I can offer, but He has what I need, and He's made a way for me. I hope you're picking up on some, some threads of good news in this story. Naked, hungry, thirsty. The song that we sometimes sing says, Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. That's Ruth. That's you and me this morning. Second character that we need to see in this passage, though, is Boaz the Redeemer. Boaz is described stepping into this this grim picture like a a ray of hope. Verse 1 describes him, and and then again, it it moves on from him for, for a moment, but he's described as a worthy man. Verse 3, we can infer that he was not only a worthy man, a man of character and esteem and integrity and and dignity, but he was also a wealthy man, and and those two don't always go together. His his worth was not in his wealth. That's manifested very clearly in the passage as we read it. It was in something higher, his character. His conduct. And really, those were located in his Lord. This worthy man, however, does have means. Uh, We we can infer that from verse 3 and onwards because there is a, a hierarchy of staff that he has in the fields. He's not the one that is bringing in the the harvest. He walks into the fields well after the day has started. Only the boss is allowed to show up late like that. He walks up and he greets people and they greet him back with respect. And he interrupts them and only the boss has the the, the right to interrupt the workers when they're working. And, And he asks them questions and only the boss is entitled to that information. He speaks in almost possessive terms um, of of his men who are are working the field. These are people under his authority. Worthy man, wealthy man, most importantly, a worshiping man. Verse 4, he greets them, and and we might pass a verse like this, but if you remember verse 1 of chapter 1, in the days of uh, when the judges ruled, this was not a given in Israelite culture at that time. Boaz walks into the field and he 
He says, the Lord be with you. He appeals to the name of Yahweh, the covenant relational name of God by which He revealed Himself to His enslaved people in Egypt and made covenant with them. The Lord be with you. And, and, and this, this man has infused his workplace with a culture of worship such that they know the appropriate response. The Lord bless you. And as he relates to Ruth and others throughout the, uh, the, the chapter, we see reference after reference to the Lord, more, more references from Boaz and, uh, in, in this chapter to the Lord than we've had up to this point. A worshiping man. And of course that is born out in his, his conduct. He's a watchful man. Not in the standards of other people during the time of the judges. In our Sunday afternoon backstories series, we're going to have a, a bit of a, a message on judges. That will not be next Sunday afternoon, but the Sunday following. And uh, it, it's a bit of a, a grim story. If you say someone's a watchful man in the days of the judges, and we're thinking about a, uh, a woman like Ruth, a foreigner, a Moabitess, sort of, working in the fields and there's some dude on the side watching her, that's creepy. And uh, that's, that's the type of stuff that was going on in the days of the judges. In fact, notice in the text, multiple references to Ruth being otherwise in danger. There is, lurking in the shadows of this chapter, the threat of harassment, assault, some of your translations might render it, molestation. Stay in Boaz's field, otherwise you'll be molested. Ruth has to, uh, not Ruth, Boaz has to reassure Ruth that he has spoken to his young men not to touch her. And then, never mind the, the things that people might physically do to her, there is still the threat of, of uh, verbal harassment. And that could take the form of something sexual, or it could be uh, racial, if we can speak in those more modern terms. She is, after all, a Moabitess of accursed people. What is she doing here? Taking all of our grain. Why don't you go back to where you come from? Back, back where you belong. You're not welcome here. He, he says, I've, I've told them not to, re, not to rebuke you. Not, not to reprove you. Not to speak against you in any way. He's watchful in the best sense. He's watching out for her. When he shows up, he, he knows his field. He knows his workers and he sees who's there. And he looks and he sees, who's this woman? I don't recognize her. I don't know who she is. I don't know. And, and not in a prejudiced way, but in a way that genuinely and immediately wants to help her. Because 
No sooner have they told him fairly briefly who she is and what she's doing than he calls out to her and offers her not only protection, but food and drink. He is, I think it's fair to say, not only a worthy man, a wealthy man, a worshiping man, a watchful man. We can say this very, about very few men, perhaps. He is a wonderful man. That's how she responds to him, full of wonder. Why are you treating me this way? Not in the sense of how we might respond to someone who's going on about you know, where we're from and we should go back and all of that. But who am I that you should be so kind to me? You don't even know me. I'm not from here. I don't, I'm not one of your servants. But you have given me grace upon grace, kindness upon kindness. Boaz gives the favor that Ruth needed. He shows her kindness and grace. He extends hospitality, not just to continue gleaning in his fields, but he calls her over and shares his lunch with her. Not only does he share his lunch with her in the sense of, here's a bag, go and you, know, you can eat it over there, but she is dipping her morsel in the wine with him, communing with him. She's there with him. He engages her in warm and friendly conversation. This, quite apart from all the other things that are going on, this is culturally unusual for a man to be engaging a woman like this in any context in that society. Never mind a foreigner, never mind someone who's not one of his servants. And he's not a threat to her. He ensures her safety. Like I said, there's this grim context implied throughout that a woman like Ruth would be unsafe elsewhere and could easily fall victim to abusive speech and behavior or of a racist or sexual variety. These were the days of the judges. There was no king in Israel. People did what was right in their own eyes and what was right in Boaz's eyes was righteous. It was truly right. Boaz's hospitality and safety is demonstrated with wonderful generosity Look at verse 14. At mealtime, Boaz said to her, Come here and eat some bread. Dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers and he passed to her roasted grain. She ate until she was satisfied and she had some left over. When she arose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men saying, I love this. Let her glean even among the sheaves. Wait, not... Not the, not the path, not the little stalks that you've dropped along the way, not, not trailing behind the cart, picking up the bits that blow off or fall off, but among the sheaves. And um, sort her out with a few bundles as well. You know, take, pull, pull some out for her. Leave it for her to glean. You know, don't, don't draw any attention to it. Let her think that she's, you know, she's, she's gleaning. But um, take it out and just, just throw it there. Look after her for me. And uh, don't rebuke her. Don't say anything against her. 
He's, he's, he's generous in sharing his lunch, which we're actually twice told she was satisfied by. It's a bit odd. It, when, when something repeats itself inexplicably, Notice that must be important. It must be significant because later when she goes home to Naomi verse at the conclusion of verse 18, she also brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. We normally don't speak that way unless it's important. It was a good lunch. She was properly satisfied by it. Had the leftovers. And she shares it with Naomi. And as she's sharing it, it seems it's talking about how satisfying it was. Incredible. He was generous in ensuring her safety. Don't touch her. Don't reproach her. Don't rebuke her. Give her your water to drink. Which is not just a, it's not just a kindness for a refreshment. It's about safety. They're out harvesting. Let her drink water. Don't say it's mine. Don't be possessive over the water that you have drawn, making her go and draw some herself. Give her some water. He's generous in ensuring her satisfaction. Let her, let her glean among the sheaves, not by the way, but in the fields. Leave some for her accidentally on purpose. Not stray bits, but whole bundles. Ruth goes home with a ridiculous amount of grain. An ephah. Now you're like, what is an ephah? I have no idea how we can actually verify what an ephah is. Uh, Ryan's telling us a ridiculous amount of grain source. Trust me, bro. Um, we interpret scripture with scripture. Do you remember when the Israelites were in the, um, in the wilderness and they were eating manna? And they were to do a collection for the day. And you remember um, uh, that, that they, they went out and they collected a day's worth of manna. It tells us what a day's worth was. It uses a measurement. That, that measurement is an omer. We know from Scripture that an omer is ten ephahs. Do the math. An omer is a day's worth of food. An ephah, an omer is a day's worth of food. An ephah is ten omers. So an ephah is 10 days worth of gleaning. So she, she's, she's beating out the, um, the gleanings, the grains and all of that, measuring it 10 days worth. And Omer held food for one day, an ephah for 10. Thus Naomi responds, where did you glean today? And who was looking after you? This man is blessed. And we're blessed through him. You can, Ruth is just catching up. You know, this is all new to her. She's just figuring things out. She doesn't know what information might be important. Later down the conversation, she says the, the man's name was Boaz. Imagine if she'd forgotten his name. Been gleaning day after day, and eventually Naomi finds out that his name was Boaz. And Naomi responds, blessing God. This wasn't engineered. This was providence. It's almost as though Naomi had forgotten Boaz existed. 
Or maybe she wondered if he was still around. Did he leave? Or did he die during the famine? He's still around. And in very good form, it seems. She says, he's one of our redeemers. Now, again, we might miss the significance of this, but a redeemer was a man who was responsible to step up in the absence of the men of the house to represent, to rescue, and to redeem, in this case, these vulnerable women and their belongings, securing their safety and their provision, recovering anything that they've lost, and doing so by paying a price. Even if necessary, renewing the bloodlines of the dead male relatives by taking for himself a wife from the vulnerable women. We've talked a bit about that when we were um, discussing Judah and Tamar in uh, our afternoon service several weeks ago. This, this safeguard that if you were married and your husband died and you did not have a son, then your husband's brother was responsible not only to you as the widow, but to the dead husband to ensure that his line was kept alive. And that's, Boaz is one of the candidates for that responsibility. It, it, you know, for a system that seems strange, weird, perhaps even a bit gross to some of us today, you couldn't have a better candidate than this man. But Boaz is great. But he's not where it's all at in this passage. We've seen Ruth, the refugee. We've seen Boaz, the redeemer. We need to see the Lord, our refuge. Because Boaz and Ruth are both pointing us to him. At the heart of this passage is the declaration Boaz makes to Ruth in verses 11 through 13. Notice those verses. Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told me, and how you left your father and mother in your native land and came to a people you didn't know before. The Lord repay you for what you've done. A full reward be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Why have I found favor in your eyes? Why have you shown me grace? Boaz lists various things to start with, but I want you to look closer. We see that these things are not the root of the reason, but the fruit. Yes, uh, Ruth has cared for her mother-in-law. Yes, she has left family and native land. Yes, she has embraced her commitment to Naomi. But what lay at the heart of that, your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. The bottom line is not you've been kind to your mother-in-law, so you deserve this. The bottom line is you've taken refuge in the Lord. You've taken refuge in the Lord. And all this other stuff flows out of that. So I'm going to treat you as my sister, 
I'm going to treat you as one who is, has dignity, worth, even though you have nothing. In this case, Ruth has found her refuge in the Lord. Not, she found her refuge in the Lord before she found refuge in, in, in Boaz and in his field. You've come to take refuge under the Lord's wings. Is a, it's a phrase that's found a few places in Scripture. You could go to the Psalms, for example. David speaks of taking shelter under the Lord's wings. For example, when he's hiding in a cave, when he's being hunted by King Saul. He's running for his life. And he sings to the Lord that he's found refuge in his wings. And Boaz says... You found refuge in the Lord's wings. The Lord, not self, not other comforts, not the various other things that you could be finding refuge in today. If you think about your needs, she trusts in the Lord and commits herself to Him and He provides for her. And He puts people in her life that care for her, that minister to her, that protect her, that share with her. But it started with, your people will be my people and your God will be my God. The Lord sees. The Lord knows. And although you have nothing to bring, by coming to Him, you have everything you need and you can do all things. You can, as Paul says, learn the secret of contentment, how to have much and how to have little. You can do all things through Him who strengthens you. And yes, He does repay. And He does reward, but in a way that causes us to be scandalized by His grace because we know we brought nothing to this. But he sees those things that he is doing in us and through us, and he rewards us anyway out of his grace, out of his kindness. It's not me. It's not my power. It's not my will at work in this. It's not my flesh. It's you. The Lord repay you. The Lord reward you. Your trust will not be abused if you come to Him. You will not have taken refuge in Him only to find yourself cast out. Jesus appealed to Jerusalem. Jerusalem. How, how many times I wanted to gather you like a hen gathers her chicks under its wings, but you were not willing. Where are you this morning? Are, are you Ruth, falling on your face in worship and praise before the Lord? Worthy is the Lamb, as we sang a moment ago. Worthy is the King of glory, high and lifted up, your presence fills your temple as we worship you. Forever you're faithful. Forever you're, you're kind. Forever you are with us. 
Are, are, are you singing to Him your praises? Are you giving to Him truly out of your heart? Trust. I have nothing in my hands. I can do nothing actively to obey in such a way as to win your favor. But simply by believing, I receive the gifts of your righteousness and your Holy Spirit. Or are you Jerusalem that Jesus says kills the prophets, rejects the word, chicklets running about, refusing to be gathered under the safety of their mother's wings? Seeking and even better finding refuge in a nation with greater freedom and opportunity is one thing. And some of you have walked that path. But all of us, regardless of our statehood, need some kind of refuge. The nations rage. The peoples of earth plot. The foundations shake. The systems break as we endure the harsh realities of a world enslaved to demonic entities, selfish ambitions and desires, and rebellion against God. But this morning, I want you to, to seek not only refuge, not only to seek it, but to find it. That refuge is found where Ruth found it. It is found with the Lord's people. Like Boaz. And it's found in the Lord Himself whom Boaz worshipped. Yes, it's found even in the one who's descended from Boaz as far as humans are concerned. Uh, the, the one who would later be made flesh, born in our likeness, and would experience the frailty and vulnerability of a threatened infant in Bethlehem, the same city where these events took place. So let's go to Him. Let's go to Jesus, our Redeemer, the true and better Boaz. Are you hungry? There's bread of life in Bethlehem. Are, are, are you thirsty? There's living water in Bethlehem. Are you empty-handed, grieving, vulnerable, lost, wandering, even alone? There is one who is surrounded by a multitude singing worthy, whose wealth extends to all things made, who does not worship, but is himself worshipped, who watches, sees, hears and intervenes on behalf of His people. His name is wonderful. He's Jesus. He comes to us as a, as a brother, a kinsman. He comes to us, Christ, paying the price for us, our Redeemer. So let's go to Him. Let's go back to Bethlehem. Father, Thank you for your love for us in Jesus. Thank you that everywhere we look in Scripture, we see good news. We need not despair. We, we certainly need not be defeated. We pray, Lord, that you would strengthen us and help us with this good news. Fill us with its hope. In Jesus' name, amen.